Well, we're turning to the book of Ezra, as you are aware, doing a study in this book and moving on now toward the final part of the book. So we're turning to chapter 8 once again. I want to read the latter part of this chapter. I also bid welcome to all who are here. Um, We're glad to see you this morning, praying that the Lord will come alongside and touch all of your hearts. Those visiting are especially welcome, as has been said, and those online as well. We were really thrilled to see how many people, uh, or a number of people over the past week who put up comments, people from Australia and America and here and there across the face of the earth. And it's always great to hear from our webcast viewers, so keep that up and welcome here today. I'll just say to the young people, on Friday night I will be bringing the word to you, the Lord willing, and there will, <coughs> excuse me, there will be a time of prayer in that meeting with regard to the Youth Challenge Week that is coming up. So young people, prepare yourselves for that and come together on Friday evening with a true earnest heart to meet with the Lord and to lay hold upon Him at the throne of grace and prayer. Ezra chapter 8, we want to read from verse 21. Let's hear the Word of God as we have it before us. And we read down through this portion. Ezra 8, verse number 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of Him a right way for us and for our little ones, and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to, to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Then I separated twelve of the chief of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed unto them the silver and the gold and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I even weighed unto their hand six hundred and fifty talents of silver, and silver vessels an hundred talents, and of gold an hundred talents, talents and also twenty basins of gold of a thousand drams, and two vessels of fine copper, precious as gold. And I said unto them, Ye are holy unto the Lord. The vessels are holy also, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering unto the Lord, God of your fathers. Watch ye and keep them, until ye weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites, and chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So took the priests and the Levites the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our God. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go on to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay in wait by the way. 
and we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. Now on the fourth day was the silver and the gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with them was Jozebad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Binui, Levites, by number and by weight of every one, and all the weight was written at that time. Also the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel, twelve bullocks for all Israel, ninety and six rams, seventy and seven lambs, twelve he goats for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. And they delivered the king's commissions unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors on this side the river. And they furthered the people and the house of God. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of His truth to all of our hearts. Now, could we bow in prayer? And again, just let's lift up our hearts to the Lord in a moment's prayer. Father, we bow before Thee, deeply aware of the need of this moment. We come around the Word. We come to hear from Thee. We pray that the Spirit of God, the author of the book, will breathe on the preacher, breathe on the people. We pray that there will be a removal of every distraction from our minds and from our midst, and that we will be shut in with God until this meeting is over. O Lord, we pray, therefore, for Thy hand to be with us and Thy power to be felt among us. Give me that anointing. Yea, Lord, give me, first of all, that fresh cleansing in Jesus' blood and the anointing of the Spirit to bring the Word of God. We'll give Thee the praise and the glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His sake and for His eternal praise. Amen and amen. There is a little snippet in verse 21 on which I want to focus your minds today in this message. It's those particular words where it says, to seek of Him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. My subject this morning will be, by the help of God, the right way to live. The right way to live. Now let me remind you that in coming to Ezra 7, we enter into the second half of the history of the return of God's people from Babylon. A few details of the timeline of that era, I believe, are helpful. You all know what a timeline is, I'm sure, and so we can work out a timeline as we come just to think about these chapters before us. We remind ourselves of the fact that in 539 B.C., Cyrus overthrew the Babylonian Empire, and almost immediately in 538 B.C., he issued a decree for the Jews to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. Over the next two years, the altar of worship was set up and the foundation of the new temple was laid. Then for about 20 years, because of the opposition of the heathen and the carelessness of God's people, the work ceased until the reign of Darius which began in 522 B.C. 
with the rebuilding of the temple being completed in 516 B.C. Now, all of that belongs to the first six chapters of this book. And so that's the timeline that you should always keep in mind as you think about chapters 1 to 6 of the book of Ezra. Then the next 58 years are passed over really in silence until we come to the year 458 B.C., when another company of Jews returned from Babylon under this man Ezra, the priest of God. And the return of Ezra and the people with him is in focus here in chapters 7 and 8 of this book. It's undoubtedly clear that Ezra attached great importance to the whole episode of the removal from Babylon to Jerusalem. That is proved by the fashion in which he has, as the writer of this book, recorded in intimate detail the event of their removal from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's found in chapter 7 and 8, as I've already indicated. The first, five, sorry, the first ten verses of chapter 7 contain a concise summary of Ezra's journey to Jerusalem. Then in verse 11, he goes back and he starts to write about all the preparation that had gone into the journey that he took along with that company of the people of God. And so chapter 7, from chapter 7, verse 11, right through to the end of chapter 8, where I finished reading uh, just a few minutes ago, relates mainly to the preparation for the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Indeed, the greater portion of these two chapters is devoted to a description of the different details that went into the record or the preparation of going from Babylon to Jerusalem. And only in two verses, actually, do you read of the journey. That's verses 31 and 32. There's only those two verses in chapter 8 here where you have anything said about the actual journey itself that they took on that occasion. Now, one of the main features of the preparation for the journey to Jerusalem is referred to in the context of that period of prayer and fasting for which Ezra called uh, before setting out to go to Jerusalem. We were looking at that really in the last two messages that I preached from this, seven, from this eighth chapter. And so we find that that was the main focus in the preparation really. They sought God, they came to Him, they called upon Him for His blessing to be on the journey that they were about to take, on which they were about to embark as they left the city of Babylon. And so it's in that setting that we have these words in verse 21, to seek of Him a right way. Here is a particular purpose for the calling of fasting and praying. It was very clear, or is very clear, that they sought the Lord for a right way regarding the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Furthermore, the words in uh, verse 23 then clearly inform us that their prayer was heard and that God answered them mightily because it says there in verse 23, and He was entreated of us. And so their prayer was for a right way. And God heard that prayer 
and God was with them in their experience of their removal from Babylon to Jerusalem. That intense seeking of God in fasting and prayer in relation to their journey is a reminder to us of our own need to seek the Lord that He would give us a right way. God's people are constantly reminded in the Word of God that they are pilgrims, that they are sojourners, for this world is not our true inheritance. We must never lose sight of that fact that we are headed swiftly toward eternity. And soon our brief day of sojourning in this world will have ended. And therefore, not losing sight of that, as we make our way to the heavenly Jerusalem, it is surely incumbent upon us that we would seek from God the right way in which to live and in which to serve God as we make our way to the Jerusalem that is above, that heavenly Jerusalem, that place where the saints of God will live and dwell with the Lord forever. And together as a, as a whole company, we will see our Savior, we will be around His feet, we will rejoice before Him throughout the ages of eternity. Therefore, we need to live in the right way and serve the right way as we make our way through uh, from the Babylon of this old world to the Jerusalem that is above. That's really how we want to think about this passage today. That's the theme that arises out of verse number 21, to seek of Him a right way. A thing that I want to consider with you today as we come to the message that God has placed upon my heart. The right way. The way that arises from the fact that God's true people are a redeemed people. And a redeemed people do not, should not live in a way that is totally unrelated or is completely incompatible with being a redeemed people. Do you hear what I'm saying to you today? Because these folk who come out of Babylon were God's people and the Lord redeemed them from Babylon and He's taken them back to Jerusalem where they really belonged as a redeemed people. And brethren and sisters, it's so simple. We are redeemed people first and foremost, leaving aside all denominational tags, though they have their place and rightly so. God's people are a redeemed people, and a redeemed people should live in the right way and serve in the right way as they travel through this life toward that Jerusalem that is above. And I pray that today as we look at that and think about that theme, that the Lord will come near and touch our hearts and give to us understanding of who we actually are and what life is all about and how we are to consider our lives and our time in this world and what God has us for in this world. We need to think about that again and again and again because we're so apt to forget once you forget or are remiss in your mind about the fact that God has redeemed you, you will not live in the right way and you'll not serve God in the right way. It's a fact that we must never forget. And therefore, may God really impress it upon our souls. So, moving on here, I want to deal with that theme in three very simple ways. Number one, 
there is, first of all, here a principle. It is the principle of uprightness, symbolized by this word right, and especially the phrase, a right way. Now, I want to give you a little uh, help here, a little instruction with those two words, the word right and then the word way. In order to see this principle, uh, the principle of upright living, honorable living, godly living in this world as we travel through our days and our times and we eventually come to the glory that shall be hereafter. The original Hebrew word for right is a word used multiple times in the Old Testament. It is primarily translated in two ways, as it is here, right, but then also translated upright. And you have it used that way of Job, in Job 1, verse 1. And we'll look at that verse a little later, but the verse says that Job was an upright man. And at once, therefore, we notice that the Hebrew word that means right or upright is a word that signifies moral and spiritual life, matters that are holy, matters that are godly, matters that are spiritual, uh, those issues that have to do with who a redeemed people really are. A redeemed people should be, as this word signifies, an upright people. And then you take the word way, for it says a right way in verse 21. And the word way signifies a trodden path. Now, sometimes, but actually, amazingly, just a few times, that word way, a trodden path, refers to a physical path in terms of, of a literal path like these Jews were going to take from Babylon to Jerusalem. Certainly that was in view. But it is far more than that to its meaning and a rich, deep meaning. The first time you find this word way, and that's always a guide as to how you understand it. The first time you find the word way is in Genesis 3.24. And there you find in that verse reference made to the cherubim and the flaming sword guarding the way of the tree of life. And in that reference, the reference is to God's way. It's a reference to God and His holiness, uh, His own perfections, His own uprightness, His own spiritual purity. That's what's meant by that expression there in Genesis 3 verse 24. Then in Genesis 6 verse number 12, you've got it used again. And it's used there in a negative way. But let me give you the, the words. Uh, you're dealing there with what's called the antediluvian age, the time just before the flood. And then it says in Genesis 6 12, all flesh had corrupted His, that is, God's way upon the earth. God's way. Now, that's not a physical path. That's God's way in the sense of who God is, God's own personal nature, God's own holiness, God's righteousness, God's morality, God's spirituality, God's absolute Holiness is what's in view there. And we're told that in that awful age that led to the flood, the whole world had corrupted God's way. It's the same word that's used here. Or we have it in Genesis 24, verse 27. It's important that you and I understand this word way. 
It's just not a physical path. It's much more than that. Genesis 4.27, you may remember the words, I'm sure many of you do, Abraham's servant who is on a quest to find a bride for Isaac. And you remember his wonderful words, I being in the way, the Lord led me. There it is again. And obviously, Abraham's servant is in the, the way of prayerfulness. He's in the way of listening and seeking for the will of God. He's in the way of closeness to God and walking with God so that he is led right to the young lady who is to be the wife of Isaac. And so while he took a journey, while he was on a particular uh, commission, physically speaking, to find a bride, Yet when he said, I've been, in the Lord, I've been in the way, the Lord led me, he's not speaking there of the journey that he took from Canaan away back into Mesopotamia. No, he's speaking of the way of fellowship with God, prayerfulness and intimacy in his communion with God. That's the way that's mentioned there. Now I think we're beginning to see the principle that the way that's mentioned in, in Ezra 8 and verse 21, to seek a right way, while there was a physical dimension to it in a little sense, and I know they walked quite away from Babylon to Jerusalem, yet it's much, much more than that. And so when Ezra led the congregation in prayer to seek of God a right way, the focus in prayer was on far more than the physical dimension of the whole experience. That was there, but considering the two words, right and way, we may truly think of the pilgrimage that the church of God is called upon to take as she journeys to heaven, as she makes her way from the city of destruction. Because remember, Babylon was destined to be destroyed. And the Babylonian system of this world is destined to be destroyed. Out of that, God has brought us. And as they made their way from the city of destruction to the city of God, they wanted a right way. They wanted to follow the principle of morality and spirituality and uprightness before the Lord. And so do we. If we love the Lord, if we know the Lord, if we have a desire to praise Him and to glorify Him, that will be our chief and our overwhelming motivation to have a walk with God that is characterized by an upright manner of life and behavior as we travel to Zion. What's in view, therefore, is really under this principle of an upright and following the way that leads to a closer walk with God, etc. What's in view there is really having a good testimony before God and before men. That is brought out in the context here. Verse 21 refers to their fasting and their praying to obtain this right way. Verse 22 gives the reason why they sought a right way from the Lord, because as I showed you, they had testified before Artaxerxes the king that the Lord would be merciful to them. They didn't need His help in the sense of that military escort that I talked about a few weeks ago in the message. They felt we don't need that. In fact, they were ashamed to ask for that because they had said to this man, the Lord will look after us. And therefore, they get before God and they seek for that right way from the Lord because they realize that they have put 
as it were, they've put themselves on the line for God's sake and for the glory of God. They've done it before the very king, and now they need God to prove himself to them. Now they need God to give them all that they need to walk a right way, and in other words, have a testimony, a good testimony that will glorify the Lord. And my friend, putting it very simply, a right way glorifies the Lord. And that principle that we're thinking about on this particular point of a, an uprightness, a purity, a way of behavior and conduct that will bring honor and praise to our God, that will glorify the Lord, and that must be our constant goal. Therefore, it all has to do with the walk of the Christian. As we look at Ezra chapter 8, the context that I've shown you, it's about the journey of God's people. Their exodus from Babylon to Jerusalem, from the city of evil, and what an evil city Babylon was. But from that city of evil, going to the city of truth and the city of holiness, underlined there is this issue of bearing a good testimony, and that belongs to the matter of our walk with God. Let me say to you this morning, there are many metaphors used in the Bible with regard to Christian living. There's the soldier, the imagery of the soldier, or even the fisherman fishing for souls, whatever you care to think about. You know many of them yourselves. But let me say to you that the, that the chief one I feel, the chief one that I see in the Bible, is this matter of the Christian actually walking. And it comes out again and again and again throughout the Scriptures. And in the Old Testament, all the Hebrew words that are translated by the verb to walk, or that are verbs that are translated to walk, every one of them means to go on. To go on. Now think about that for a moment or two. Because clearly there, there is the idea, there is the fact of progress of a steady fashion and consistent momentum in the Christian life. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Are you going on? That's how we often would speak of somebody who's doing well in the, in the Christian life. There's a young man, there's a young woman, there's an aged saint, whoever it might be, may say, he or she is going on with God. That's the meaning of the word walk in the Old Testament, to go on. You know, interestingly, it's the word that's used for two outstanding men of God of whom it is said that they walked with God, and you know them. There's that man Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Let's translate it this way. Enoch went on with God 300 years. From the day he was saved at the age of 65, he never stopped walking with God. From that moment, he went on. I tell you, young person, make sure that you go on with God. If you've come to the Lord recently, go on with God. Or no matter what time has gone by from your conversion, make sure you're going on with God. And then the other man, of course, is Noah. Noah was a just man. You know, it's interesting to see that verse, Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a just man. Then it says, Noah walked with God. You know what you have there? You have his justification and his sanctification brought together. He's a just man. 
because he found grace in the sight of the Lord. That means that God saved Noah and that God justified Noah and he became a justified man. But I tell you, you never have justification without sanctification. Never. And there it is. Noah was a just man. Noah walked with God. So this whole matter of that we're seeing here, this principle of an upright in life and, and so on, and because they were on a journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, it indicates the, that the matter of walking with God, going on with God day by day consistently and following after the Lord without any hesitation, I tell you today, there's something on which to focus your mind. And therefore, the believer who wishes to have a good testimony must walk with God in a right way or an upright way. Now, taking the uses of the word that has sounded it right, it will be found that often it ha- that it all has to do with doing right in the sight of God. And I want to emphasize that. Let me show you quickly a verse where the word right or upright is used. Deut- Deuteronomy 13 and verse 18 is used in that way. Deuteronomy 13, verse number 18. And it says there, When thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep all His commandments which I command thee this day, to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. Now that's the end of a sentence that begins in verse 17. I'm not taking time to read verse 17. But here's the closing part of this sentence that starts in verse 17. But just focus now on those words at the end of verse 18. To do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And that's the same word. Doing that which is right, upright. That which belongs to our walk. That which has to do with our Christian behavior and our testimony, going on with God. And my friend, are you doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord? The whole point is that when we have that awareness that the Lord sees us and the Lord is watching over us, that will promote a holy walk. Do you remember what it says of Joseph, that young man who was so godly, so holy in his life. You have a story in this particular facet of it in Genesis 39. And that's a fascinating chapter for a number of reasons, but let me just tell you of two verses that are there that bring out what I am saying to you. Our walk with God is seen by God first and foremost. His eyes are on us. And therefore, that knowledge will fill our hearts with this desire to walk a holy walk because there's never a moment when the Lord's eyes are off us. There's never a moment when He doesn't see us. And there's Joseph down in Egypt. And you know the story where that wicked woman, Potiphar's wife, sought to seduce him. She's a type of the world, for example. The world always ready to lead the believer astray, lead the Christian down into wickedness and sin. Although that was a real contextual situation in that case where a woman sought to bring down a young man. But you know what it says about that woman in verse 7 of Genesis 39? His master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. 
And what was Joseph's reply? Well, Joseph's reply indicates that he knew that the eyes of somebody else was on him or were on him. And that, of course, is the Lord because he said this. He said it back to her. He said it in response to her seduction. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knew that the eyes of God were on him. And while her eyes were on him, and in her lust, and in her immoral desire, she wanted Joseph. Obviously, she's a wicked woman. Couldn't be otherwise. When you read those words, she put her eyes on him. And my friend, the eyes of the ungodly are on you to bring you down, to cause you to fall. And therefore, you must keep in mind what Joseph kept in mind. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because God's eyes were in Joseph. Oh yes, invisible to him, invisible to everybody else, but on him nonetheless. And dear believers, see that today, this consciousness that God's eyes are upon us, that we want to walk a right way in the eyes of the Lord. His eyes are always on us. That will promote a holy walk. And furthermore, that will prevent doing what seems good in our own eyes. Just think about that one. You know how the Bible speaks quite a bit here and there about doing that which is right in your own eyes? That's the danger. When we start to judge things or start to assess matters with regard to Christian living, from our perspective, that's what it means, from our vantage point of our own wisdom, as, well, we may think we're wise, we're just a bunch of fools at the end of the day. Once you start to make judgments on the basis of your own assessments or what you think is right or whatever way you want to put it, you're going to go wrong. You must realize that you cannot do that which seems to be right in your own eyes. If you're going to avoid the pitfall and the danger, that's what they did in the days of the judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no discipline. There was no regulation of life. There was no desire to be submissive to authority. There was simply this bubbling up of the lust and the desire to get one's own way. And my friend, the question needs to be in your heart today, is it God's will or is it my will? Is it the will of the world or is it the will of the book? That's what's to govern our thinking. What does God want? What is His will? How are we to view ourselves in these matters as we seek to walk with God and travel all the way home to heaven? There must be a desire to go on with this principle of uprightness dominant in our thinking, characterizing our lives because the eyes of God are upon us, promoting a holy walk, keeping us from doing that which is right in our own eyes, being like Job, that holy man of God, Job 1, 1, I've already referred to that verse. He says he's an upright man. There was none like him for godliness, for holiness in that eastern part of the world where he lived in those days. 
He was an upright man who eschewed evil. He eschewed evil. That's a good word. It's a word that signifies actually shying away from what is evil. And oh, how often that does not happen when it should happen. How often we don't eschew evil. How often we uh, tamper with it and dabble with it and our minds are polluted and our hearts are grieved then and we have to get before God and confess our sin. Ah, my dear friend, here is the principle that's in this verse, in this prayer, to give us a right way, an upright way. And may I bring you to that right now. They prayed for this. Let me ask you a question, another question. Every day are you getting before God and praying something like this, Lord, you have said in your word that those whom you have foreordained and has chosen before the foundation of the world, you have also predestinated to be conformed to the image of of your son. But you know, this is really what this principle is all about. Upright, a, a way that is well trodden, walking after God, following after holiness, guarding our testimonies, eschewing evil, not doing what's good and right in our own eyes and so on, but desiring always to be like the Lord Jesus. That's true holiness. That's what will bring holiness into our hearts and lives. It's the prayer, Lord, you said this, that your people will be conformed to the image of your Son. Now, Lord, there is your will for me. Now, Lord, do it. Do you see what I'm saying to you this morning? You might wonder, well, how do I find out all the details of what a right way is and how I am to live, how I am to behave, how I am to conduct myself. Let me tell you, friend, it's very simple, really. It's to be like Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who works that in us. So you make that your prayer. You go before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm seeking the right way here. I want to be like your Son. You can't go wrong praying that. No, no, you cannot. Pray that prayer from the depths of your heart and I tell you right now from this pulpit, God will answer it. If you pray something like, Lord, make me like that man of God, I would not advise that. Although a true man of God will be a pattern, only as he's like the Savior. But pray this and I can urge it upon you with all my soul today. Lord, make me like. Jesus Christ. And not only will that be for you to seek for the right way, that will result in the very thing that you're asking of God happening. He will make you like Christ in your attitudes, in your desires, in your interests, they will be spiritual, they will be holy first and foremost, they will be godly, they will enable you to live in a way, walk in a way that will glorify the Lord. As I said earlier, that's the whole point, that's the issue, glorifying God, seeking a right way. I think of Jabez, how he stands out 
that man whom we don't know anything more about than what you find in First Chronicles 4.10. But words that many Christians know because they're lovely words, wonderful words. Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed and enlarge my coast, and that thy, thy hand might be with me, and that thou wouldst keep me from evil, that it might not grieve me. And God granted him that which he required or requested. Now, do you see it? He asked according to the will of God. He's really asking, Lord, help me to walk in the right way. Keep me from evil. It will grieve me. Keep my feet from falling. However you want to put it, and the Lord gave it to him, and he'll give it to you. Quickly, the second thing here, not only is the principle, but the pattern. Because you look at Ezra chapter 8, and the passage carefully, you'll find that there are different truths that are brought to your attention about the right way for which Ezra prayed. And in them, in those details, there's a certain pattern set before us. It's a pattern that involves a full commitment by God's people. Look at verse 21, part B. That we might, we have the words, but just read the whole of that section. Uh, it says, to seek of Him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. you notice that? It was for them, the adults. It was for their children. It was for everything that they had. We want a right way for us, for our children, and for our substance. All that they owned, all that they were, will be set on the right way for God's glory. Everything that was within the remit and the ambit of their lives and, and of their behavior, they wanted all to be the Lord's. That's commitment, men and women. And therefore, where's the, where there's the principle of wanting to be right and walk uprightly, this is the pattern that will, be out, will, will come out of that. There will be a full commitment to the Lord. You see, the right way of the Lord is a way full of commitment. The temptation so often brought to the believer is to hold back from the way of full commitment. And there's so much in the Bible that could be taken to illustrate that, but I'll just draw one illustration, one factual event that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus. You know the story of, of Moses there uh, preceding the, 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 the plagues that came, and he went before Pharaoh and he asked the Lord, or he asked Pharaoh to release them from their bondage and so on. That's the background. We know that story well. But then there was a danger that came. Because you'll find that when Moses was seeking for the release of God's people to leave Egypt and to go to the promised land, and again, it's a redeemed people who are in view, and they're going to go on a journey to the land that God has promised them and has given to them. The danger arose when Pharaoh began to promote, began to propose his compromises. And let me just quickly mention them. Exodus 8:25, he said to them, Sacrifice to your God in the land. Stay here with us and worship. That's what he was saying. God had told them to come out. God's always telling His people to separate, to get out of 
any association with false worship and false religion. But the false religionist, as Pharaoh was, he says, you can serve God or sacrifice to God in the land. Then he gave another one. In Exodus 8, verse 28 again, same chapter and a different verse, sacrifice to your God in the wilderness, and ye only ye shall not go very far away. So he said, stay in the land at first. Then he said, go into the wilderness. Yes, that's fine. Just leave Egypt. Go into the wilderness, but don't go very far away. We want you to stay with us. The third one was this, go ye that are men and serve the Lord. That was the third compromise he suggested. In Exodus 10, 11, go ye that are men and serve the Lord. And so all these compromises were proposed by Pharaoh. But then there was a final one. I want you to see this. Exodus 10, verse 24. And if you look at that verse with me, you will see how much it has a bearing upon what we are seeing today, seeking a right way for ourselves, for our children, and for all that we are, all that we have in the sense of belonging to God. So Exodus 10 and verse number 24, and here's what he said on this occasion. Go ye serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed, let your little ones also go with you. And so he's saying to Moses, you can go and your children to go, but leave all your substance behind. What was Moses' answer? Look with me in that verse, and you will see what he said. Verse 26, Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not an hoof be left behind. Was Moses greedy? Was Moses um, a man who was materialistic when he said, Not a hoof will be left behind? No. Read on. He said, For thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. In other words, we're going and we're taking our children and we're taking all our substance because only in full commitment can we serve the Lord. And the point there is we can only worship God and sacrifice to Him when we've got our animals with us to sacrifice to the Lord. But the point is brought out of full commitment. And therefore, this is the pattern that developed in Ezra's day as well. They sought a right way for themselves, for their children, and for all that they possessed. As you see, they're all our substance in verse number 21. I leave that with you as I come to a close today. As I bring this to you from this chapter, we looked at the principle, looked at the pattern, we're seeing how God placed upon Ezra's heart, you leave all this behind you. You leave Babylon. You take everything with you. My friend, the God, the God of heaven is saying the same to his people today because that is the pattern of the right way. It's not an easy way, but it's the right way. Maybe I speak to someone today, maybe online. It could be somebody who will listen to this message at some other point. And you're thinking long and hard about leaving the old apostate church system. And all the compromises have been presented to you to stay in there. Oh, stay with us because we can use you. 
and you can do something for the Lord. That's always been the suggestion of those who do not want God's people to separate from ecumenical apostasy, from all of the trends of this day. Stay with us. We can use you. You're too good a man to lose. Don't want you to go. Well, my friend, if you stay in apostasy, that is not the will of God. That is not the upright way. The upright way is to come out, to come out of all association with ecumenism and Romanism or whatever other ism you care to mention. And it's very widespread today. But every area of life, make sure that you adopt the pattern that God's Word sets down. The final point is the purpose in all of this, seeking for a right way. And the purpose is seen when you come to the last verses of the chapter, from verse 24 to verse 27, the priests were commissioned to deliver the silver and the gold and so on for the house of the Lord. They were exhorted in verse 29 to be on the watch and keep them until you weigh them before the chief of the priests and the Levites. And then you come to verses 33 and 34 and you find that every last item was delivered and not an ounce of silver or gold was missing. Nothing had been lost. Nothing had been lost because they sought the right way. And my friend, let me tell you something. God is no man's debtor. Step out on the promise, dear Christian. Commit yourself to the Lord, and He will never let you down. You will arrive in glory, been able to say, I have been, by God's grace, able to keep that which was committed unto me by the grace of God. And now all is safely brought home to heaven. And you know the most precious thing that they brought from Babylon to Jerusalem were their little ones. It wasn't only the silver and the gold, the vessels to use in the house of God. It was the next generation. And they brought them with them. It's a marvelous and a wonderful thing when God saves our children and when they accompany us on the journey. And I know, I know as I say this, many of you are sitting in these seats today and your hearts are broken because you have children who have gone astray. You have children and no matter what you did or what you said, they wouldn't listen. Let me just say to you today, you're not responsible for their disobedience so long as you have sought to lead them in the right direction. It's one thing to make all the attempts you can and as faithfully as you can lead them in the right way. And if they do not go the right way, it will not be because you didn't teach them, train them, pray for them, and seek to lead them on that way of holiness. It's another matter if you haven't, if you haven't done your utmost to lead them to Calvary, to see them saved 
And that's the most precious thing. That's the only thing, let me say, that you can take to heaven. Your children. You'll not take money. You'll not take prestige. It doesn't matter who you are or what status you have in society. It's not worth tuppence in the final analysis. It's your children. And that was the purpose of all this. Seeking a right way. Yes, for themselves, but for their little ones and their substance to have it dedicated to the Lord and used for the Lord's glory. May God write His word in our hearts. Solemnize our souls. My friend, if that really happens, if God writes this in your heart, your prayer life will change. Your commitment to the cause of God will change. What pattern have you set? Carelessness? Negligence? I don't want to close with that, but I must mention that. What have others around you noticed? What have your children seen? Have they seen a father or a mother saying, we will get our priorities right. We will not miss God's house on the Sabbath evening. We will not miss the prayer meetings of the church as much as lies within us. We want God's way, the right way that our children might be brought with us. May God write that in our hearts. We must close now and let's bow in prayer. Have a word of prayer. Those who are remaining for the table, just remain seated. And you know the pattern. And then come into the ground floor if you're in the gallery. And let's join together. And we'll come to the time around the table. Father in heaven, bless thy truth. Use it for thy glory. Write it in all our hearts. Help us to magnify thee. And be with us now, even as we continue on, remembering the Lord. May his word come to us with freshness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.